Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 19, Wheels Within Wheels, where we will be looking at Chapters 34 through 36 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of plot devices. As per usual, here is a short explanation of the pod. Each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Then we will share a recommended thing of the week and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher Daw Books. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've read all of the books in the Kingkiller Chronicle, or B, you are one of those weird folks who doesn't mind having crucial plot details from the future revealed to you ahead of time like some sort of mad fortune teller. This is very, very accurate this time around, but needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Special note, this week, it's going to be extra spoilery with some real R plus L equals J level theory. So I guess spoilers for Game of Thrones? Eh. So if you are averse to that sort of thing, like Gollum would say, leave now and never come back. Or maybe just sit this one out and come back next time because really I don't want you to leave and you don't have to be that dramatic. Also a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, to one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. And I get to talk more because I am going to avoid the raspberries. Yep. It's time for you to uh, give us our 45-second recap. There are raspberries on the line, and I'm looking for an excuse to get more. Not this week. You say that, but hubris is the pride that goeth before the fall. So, you ready? I am. In three, two, one. Quoth gets Dinah's ring back, but now he can't find her. Then we get a whole bunch of lore and reminders of how the Chandrian are actually the big bad of this series, and then more lore and more theories, like R plus L equals J type theories. And then we get some really sweet friendship and bonding time between Quoth, Will, and Sim. The end. 20.98 seconds. Correct. No raspberries this time. There will be more. As long as it's not like white chocolate and raspberry. I wouldn't do that to you. I don't even really like white chocolate myself, so. And you're stuck with whatever I don't eat. Exactly. So uh, this time it's a lot of moving the story forward in bits and pieces as we get some exposition around the world itself and some of those sort of dangling plot threads that have been just kind of hanging out there. Like the antagonist, other than Ambrose. Right, because this isn't just Quoth's college hijinks. Right. It's not a heist movie. Or even just a college comedy. A slobs versus snobs story. We are 288 pages in, and there has been barely a word said about the big bad of the series. But this is also one of our first hints about the big good of the series, which can be sometimes just as terrifying, if not more so. Than the big bad? Yes. Let's start things off here with chapter 34, which is Bobbles. This is sort of some wrap-up from the heist where Quoth goes to the jeweler to turn in the remittance slip to pick up the ring for Denna. The third jeweler that he has gone to to try to pick up Denna's ring. Yeah, the uh, jeweler didn't exactly leave their name on this little slip of paper. That's bad graphic design right there. You should be leaving your name, your logo, your number, your address, all of that stuff. How are people supposed to find you? Right? I mean, you got to figure for a guy like Ambrose, who maybe is doing business all over town, how does he keep track of which slip goes where? And if all it says is the description of the ring, I mean, that thing's as good as gone. So, yeah, maybe some bad business decisions on the part of this jeweler. But what I would like to say is that the fact that 
Foth went to multiple jewelers. Like, this is the third one. That's a very loving act. That he didn't give up after the first one. That he didn't give up after looking at the plethora of places that this ring could exist. I know, and it's not like he has Google Maps handy so he can just find all of the jewelers near me and then just get a convenient route. He has to do some serious digging here. You know, and one of the other things that we get in here is he has to actually pay for the ring itself because Ambrose didn't pay ahead of time, which honestly, that's probably not terribly surprising because the jeweler does not know what the actual bill of work is going to be until the work is done. Not unusual for hourly work like this. So in this case, it's not so much Ambrose being a cheapskate or a jerk face. It's literally not having the information to be able to pay for it. Now, granted, Ambrose did actually pay for it because Kvothe stole the money from Ambrose. Yep. And while he's there, Kvothe also notices a necklace that looks exactly like the one that Denai used to wear. You don't often see an emerald of this cut and quality. It's interesting. He asks the jeweler how much it is, and it's a staggering sum. Right, so much so that Kvothe doesn't even bother telling us. It's a lot. This is also where we get a hint that this is probably how Denna was able to afford that splendid loot case that she had made for him. Which I think right there is a pretty big clue that she thinks the world of him. That's the kind of gift that she doesn't give to just anyone. That's the kind of gift that no one really gives to just anyone. Given that Denna does not exactly have a ton of money, that represents a massive sacrifice on her part. Apparently the staggering amount that the jeweler paid her could have let her live in Imre comfortably for a year. She wanted to do something nice for Kvothe. Honestly, this is why I think Denna is a better person than a lot of the fandom gives her credit for. Yes. I think that she is probably a better person than even Kvothe gives her credit for. And he loves her. Or at least he thinks he does. He loves the idea of her. Hopefully by now he's starting to actually get to know her. And not just his preconception of girl. And so then, of course, he goes to try and find her because he would love to be able to give her ring back to her. Which... Again, this is a kind gesture on his part. He does some looking at the place where she said she had dinner, which turns out was just a restaurant, and then gets made to feel bad for keeping her waiting. So the maitre d' or the host or whatever nodded in recognition of the description that Kvoth gives. Dark-haired, lovely, was here the night before. He nodded at that. She waited for a long while. He said, I remember thinking, who would keep a woman like that waiting? The answer is someone who has to rely on the messaging system of Emory and the university. And an illiterate 10-year-old. Yeah, it's one thing if you're able to just send a quick text message for everything. This is a completely different ballgame. So now that we've wrapped up that little section, enter the theories. We move into chapter 35, which is Secrets. We start with Kvothe on his way to the fishery, where he's accosted by Nina, who is a girl that he met in Traben and had given an amulet for protection from demons. It's probably just a random piece of scrap metal, and also it took him a while to place her. She didn't exactly make a huge impression on him, but he made an impression on her. Here we learn that Nina is the one who's been asking after the red-haired wizard, and causing Master Kilvin all that anguish and grief over what Kvothe might be up to. Might be selling. We can understand a little bit of Kilvin's concern here. I mean, it's a little white lie, but it could be really dangerous, given some of the forces involved here. Well, regardless, Nina reveals to Kvothe that she has been having dreams about the piece of pottery that she was shown that has depictions of the Chandrian on it. She's been having these intense visions every night and has actually drawn them out on a little strip of vellum 
so that Quoth can actually get a look. This strip of vellum being a piece of paper she took out of the book of the path and scraped the words off of, except for references to holy figures. Maybe that'll mean something, maybe it won't. But one of the things that we see is a depiction of Cinder. We also, of course, see Haliax with over his head a full moon, a half moon, and a crescent moon. That'll be really important here, because the story of Jax that we'll see later on talks about a person courting the moon. He also has two candles, one yellow, and the other is gray with a black flame. Then we've got a naked woman, and then one of the Amir, who uh, Nina considers the most frightening of them. So he is grim of face, and he has a red hand. The bloody-handed Amir. Exactly. This is one of those kind reminders that nice and good are two very different things, and that sometimes good people can be terrifying, especially if they believe that in their heart of hearts someone is standing in the way of the greater good. They are not afraid to use that person or destroy that person the moment they cease to be useful. The Amir themselves, I think, are pretty terrifying when you think about them. Like, they're sort of like this mix of the Knights Templar and they have kind of an Illuminati feel to them, where they're all about the greater good. The greater good. And they don't fork around. We'll see later references to them with this guy named the Duke of Gibeah. He's essentially Nero. I was going to say more like Dr. Mengele. Fair enough. In that he in the pursuit of the greater good, has chosen to perform all sorts of horrible medical experiments on his subjects. And all of the things that he's discovered have later gone into the general knowledge of medicine that people use in this world. Arguably, it has saved a lot of lives, but the cost is actually pretty staggering. He even has, for the greater good, as sort of a signet in his journal which is a slogan associated with the Amir. So these are not just merely romantic knights errant going out righting wrongs. These are people who act as judge, jury, and executioner as they see fit, and they can use whatever powers they want to meet their ends because they are completely convinced of their justification. I don't know about you, but that's pretty terrifying. And it's kind of that reminder that Oftentimes, villains think they're heroes, and I kind of feel that way about the Amir. These people are pretty convinced that they're heroes, and in fact are so convinced that they will do literally anything to advance their goals. You might be able to squint and believe that it's going to be better in the long run if the Amir are successful, but there are going to be a lot of people who are going to pay the price for it. I'm really fascinated by big goods as antagonists. So, very fascinating stuff there. So then, it's important to note his bloody, outstretched hand wasn't demonstrating something. It was making a gesture of rebuke towards Haliax and the rest. And the others are shrinking away. He was holding up his hand to stop them. If Haliax is, in fact, Lanray... Could this possibly be Selatos? It's possible. Like, Selatos has that true naming power, that true seeing power as well. It feels like a cleric from Dungeons and Dragons using Turn Undead. That's a wonderful spell. Actually, it's a divine ability. It's not a spell. <laughs> Pedantic. Look, these are the rules. <laughs> <laughs> it's very important that we get those correct. <laughs> Because you can't counterspell turn undead. Okay. <sighs> so in talking about the Cyridae, the Amir, Nina is so disturbed that she shivers and pulls her cloak tightly around herself. She says, I don't like looking at him even now. And she drew him. They were all awful to look at, but he was the worst. I can't get faces right, but his was terrible grim. He looked so angry. He looked like he was ready to burn down the whole world. And then Quoth asks, 
if this is one side, do you remember the rest of it? And while it's not as vivid, she does remember some of it. She said that there was a woman with no clothes on and a broken sword and a fire. She looked thoughtful then and shook her head. Like I told you, I only saw it for a quick second. I think an angel helped me remember this piece in a dream. Interesting. So we also know that she is a believer in the Talon religion, which has a cosmology of angels and demons and things like that. And also that the entire town thinks that the Dracus was a demon. We also know that Quoth is kind of going out of his way to avoid talking about that whole bit because he doesn't want to take responsibility for any of that. Yeah. So the words that she specifically didn't scrape off of the vellum that she unceremoniously cut out of the Book of the Path, she was careful not to scrape off Telu's name or Andon's or any of the other angels. She'd painted the Amir so that the words Andon and Ordal rested directly on top of his shoulders, one on each side, which sounds a lot like the angel and demon iconography, especially from like old school cartoons where we've got one angel on the shoulder and one devil on the other trying to entice someone to either do the right thing or to do the fun thing. And then she says, and painting is like telling with pictures instead of words. And I love that. The other thing that is kind of funny here is Quoth is mildly horrified that she stole this from the Book of the Path, though not so much from the religious angle, mostly just because he reveres books so much after all his time in the archives. Oh man, if Lauren ever heard about this. Lauren, who freaks out if people handle a book by the wrong side of it. Grasp it by the spine. The spine! <laughs> <laughs> just that wholesale abuse of a book, even a book that one doesn't necessarily care for, is a bridge too far. But all of this also serves a purpose. It gives Kvothe another angle to find out about the Chandrian, because apparently they have a connection to the Amir. And as he says here, the Amir have a public history that is pretty well documented, so that may give him a place to start. Rather than looking more into the Chandrian, who have little snippets in children's stories and nursery rhymes. Now, Quoth does compliment Nina on her choices. She figures that no demon would ever look at a page from the Book of the Path, so regardless of the abuse of the book, she has a practical reason, quote, practical reason, to feel okay and no remorse whatsoever for having destroyed a part of a book. And then the bell rings the hour, and Nina is just like, oh no, my mom's going to kill me. And Quoth is so tickled by the fact that this girl that was so brave as to challenge the Chandrian or tempt fate that way is afraid of her mother. That just kind of speaks to kids' priorities. Like, you're afraid of getting grounded, you know, or they might yell at you. One thing to know about the public history around the Amir is that the Amir had been founded, quote, founded by the Talon Church in the early days of the Aturan Empire. But the pottery that Nina had seen had been much older than that. And so what Quoth also knows is that the Amir had been condemned and disbanded by the church before the empire fell. But also to note that the Chandrian were still afraid of the Amir. So that kind of makes me think there might be two organizations of the Amir. You have one organization that stretches all the way back to Mir Terenial that is this force dedicated to fighting the Chandrian at all costs that has been pursuing the Seven across the face of the earth and dedicated to the greater good, etc. in secret and is living on in legend. And then there is another group that is inspired by those stories, uses that as their name, and is treated as an official wing of the Aeturian Empire during its founding. And the church. 
it's a blending of church and political power. I'm specifically thinking about the Knights Templar here, who started as effectively a wing of the Catholic Church during the Crusades and amassed massive sums of wealth and then used that to garner political power throughout Europe. And then after their power grew too great, they started to become a threat to the monarchies and the church itself. So then they were officially excommunicated and disbanded and sentenced to death. I think this may be a case of that, where you have this group that amasses both religious and political power in equal measure and ends up alienating both power bases, which is why they end up then being excommunicated and expelled and condemned, driven back into the shadows. Whether they were ever tied officially with the true Amir or if and serving as just their public front or if they were just inspired by them, either way, the only ones left are the secret true Amir. Very interesting stuff. So moving on, chapter 36 is called All This Knowing, and this is just a really good bit of character building, specifically for Quoth, Will, and Sim. So it starts out with the three of them pub crawling, and they eventually wind up at the Aeolian. They don't remember a whole lot, except that they did do a bit of singing. So Quoth made his way through with her with he with the withy, which is something I can't say five times fast, much less sing. So that actually kind of reminds me of the uh, Mother Pheasant Plucker song that Hank Green has. A little bit, yeah. A little bit less profane, perhaps, or potentially profane, but yes. There is a possibility that there is something that that is meant to trip you up over. You mean not just the title? I mean, there might be lyrics, but the thing about it is that this song is apparently difficult enough to articulate when sober as a stone, and the audience just lapped it up, which means he was not sober, and he is boasting, and he probably tripped over his tongue so much. So on their way back, Quoth immediately freaked out because he doesn't know where his loot is. Where's my loot? Where's my loot? Oh my god, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And Will and Sim have to remind him that he left it at the Aeolian because he was probably going to trip over it and break it. This is probably one of the wiser decisions Quoth has made. Especially when drunk off his ash. You kind of get the picture that Stanchion probably provides the service for a lot of his musicians. That would be very nice of him. Just offer to keep the expensive instrument behind the bar for a little while. Probably the safest place in Emre, really. Yeah. So uh, they're on their way to the Stone Bridge and they're looking at it rising up over the river. And none of them really feel terribly confident in their ability to remain upright on said bridge. So as it turns out, Will knows a little clearing nearby... And that clearing happens to have a graystone in it. It's really kind of funny the way they all react to it. So for Quoth, coming from his trooper's background, his life on the road, a graystone is a site of warmth and friendship and hospitality. And he greets it with sort of an easy familiarity. He almost greets it the way that you would a horse. An old friend. Very gentle, warm and welcoming. Whereas... Simon and Will have more negative connotations associated with them. Like superstition. Yeah. Sim specifically says, don't push at that thing. You'll tip it over. No, this would be like trying to tip over Stonehenge. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to fall. But Sim is nervous and he says, just come away from it. They're not good things. They're pagan relics. And then in the same way that you and I might have a conversation about a thing where one of us says, no, it's this way. And the other one says, no, it's that way. We'll look it up on Google. Sim and Quoth have a little bit of a bet going on and says, a jot says I'm right. And they're going to go look it up in the archives later. 
should they be able to remember this conversation? Though, if Quoth is telling this to Chronicler, it turns out he probably does remember the conversation, but... And once again, Quoth asks about his loot, freaking out. Body of God, where's my loot? I really like how Will responds here, where he says, There is no reason to be ashamed. It is man's nature to dwell on what sits close to his heart. That's something that Will actually says a fair amount. There's no reason to be ashamed. That sort of sense that it's okay to feel how you feel, to accept it, that this is good and normal to feel the way you're feeling. You don't need to feel sad or embarrassed or anything about it. He also talks about how when Kilvin gets a few in him, he obsesses over his new cold sulfur lamp. And that when Lauren gets drunk, he rattles on about proper shelving behavior. Grasp it by the spine. By the spine. Hence my reference earlier. You know, again, just that very understanding nature that Willem has here, I think, is one of the reasons I like him as a character. And it helps to make peace with some of those warring emotions that Kvoth is feeling. I know when I'm very drunk, oftentimes things feel very heightened. You then feel really embarrassed about it afterwards, or even in the middle of it all. And so having someone to say, no, you're just feeling a thing, and it's okay to feel that thing. Everybody feels things. Having that reminder helps to dull some of that and ease the wild mood swings. Speaking of being embarrassed, though, Quoth just goes, holy crap. Did I sing Tinker Tanner? And of course he's worried that he may have sung a verse about the Talon and the sheep, but he didn't. It was a goat in the Talon's cassock. <laughs> so potentially worse. And he's worried that Stanchin or Diok are going to take his pipes away for having sung such a lewd verse. Though apparently they really enjoyed the ribaldry since everybody was really into it. Yeah. But here we get into a conversation where Quoth is finally opening up about his past to his friends. He talks about how if his dad had sung something that awful, quote, awful, that his mom would have figuratively made him sleep under the wagon. This is where Sim asks, Quoth, are you really one of the Adimaru? Because up to this point, it's really just a pejorative that's been slung at him by people that we don't like. Ambrose in particular. At first, Quoth is a little defensive about this. He says it's not an insult. Here we also find that Simon doesn't hold those connotations. He is just curious about his friend. We also have Willem here again making peace, saying there's no shame in this. It is okay. Well, Quoth initially says, what you hear isn't true. We don't steal children or worship dark gods or anything like that. And Simmons said that he never believed any of it. But he said, some of what I've heard has to be true. I've never heard anyone play music the way that you do. Which implies that what Simmons has heard also includes the performing aspects. They include the aspects of their culture that Kvothe is intensely proud of. And Kvothe himself will always talk about how only the Adima Ru could play a song like this, or one of the Ru could know all the stories of the world. And I think here we've got a little bit of Simon showing just how much he loves Kvothe. Because he's saying, these people are known for playing beautiful music like you. These are people who know stories like you. Are you one of these wonderful people? I think that's really a bit of beautiful friendship here where Simon is really seeing Kvothe as Kvothe, like this core part of himself that up until this point he is kept really buried and that only really comes out in him when he's insulted or when he's wrathful. But here we have someone who is seeing this part of who he is and reacting not with fear or anger or hostility, but curiosity and wonder. And here it's also where Quoth kind of lets go some of that gate of forgetfulness. He lets that open for the first time in years at this point. 
and he starts thinking about the song that actually got his father <laughs> sleeping under the wagon. He says, it wasn't actually for singing Tinker Tanner. It was a song that my father had written about my mother. And then he said her name for the first time since her death. So I'm going to read this song. I don't know what the tune is like, so feel free to make one up in your head. I'm not going to try. So this is called Lorien, and there's a lot packed into this. Dark Lorien, Arladin's wife, has a face like the blade of a knife, has a voice like a prickle-brown burr, but can tally at some like a moneylender. My sweet tally cannot cook, but she keeps a tidy ledger book. For all her faults, I do confess, it's worth my life to make my wife not tally a lot less. So for all of you theory crafters, if you don't know this already, work out how not tally a lot less sounds. Natalia Lockless. Yep. Lorian almost certainly is Natalia Lockless. And we will learn more about her, her sister, the family, everything, once Kvothe leaves the university. And it also hints that Kvothe has some of this noble parentage. He most certainly is somewhere in the line of succession for the throne. And heir to a vast sum of money and power. Potentially. All of that assumes that Natalia Lockless wasn't excommunicated when she joined the Rue. True. They make it sound like she was functionally dead at that point, as far as the family was concerned. As far as the lineage was concerned, too. So let's break down a little more. It wasn't because of the words, the has a face like the blade of a knife, or has a voice like a prickle brown burr, that made Lorian, or Natalia, what have you, make Arladin sleep under the wagon. It was the awful meter. I think this really kind of gets to that gentle teasing relationship that the two of them had where she expects more of him if he's going to make a teasing song about her. She deserves something that sounds a little better, that rolls off the tongue more naturally, that fits into a song structure better. Moving on, it's obvious and Quoth knows it's obvious that he has no family Anyone that knew him would know that he didn't come from a secure place or a family at this point, especially like that he's been on his own for a while. And Simmons, being the kind and gentle person that we know he is, the loving friend, gently pushes the conversation into safer territory. He says, in Ator, we sleep in the kennels when our wives are angry. And then Willem mutters something in Siaru. <laughs> And we find out that Kvothe has actually gotten a little bit better at Siaru. And can translate enough to know that Will said that men sleep next to the fire when their wives are angry. With the implication is that no matter where you go, it is the wife who controls the bed. <laughs> Not an unpleasant thought, Will said, depending on the woman. And then they start getting into conversations about women that they like, including Fella. At this point, we see that even as... We, the audience, recognize that Fella pretty clearly likes Simon and he likes her back. Simon's still a little insecure and is convinced that she's probably way out of his league and he doesn't have a hope with her. Or at least he's pretending that way. It may also be something that is him trying to convince himself not to get his hopes up, because he is a modest sort. Sim refers to her as the prettiest girl in the Commonwealth, to which Foth rebukes what he said and says, no just on the side of the river, because Denna is the prettiest girl. <laughs> of course, Denna is the prettiest girl. The girl you're in love with is the girl that is the prettiest to you. This is true. I'm just going to say this, regardless of what gender you are attracted to, the person that you are attracted to, that you have a crush on or that you are in love with, that's always the prettiest person out there. I can speak from my own experience. I know that I'm attracted to the prettiest people, and you can't convince me otherwise. You're cute, and I love you. Thank you. I love you too. 
Let's give everyone a chance to ratchet up their lunch. All right. And speaking of this, Simmons says that Kvothe should probably at least make some kind of move with Denna to let her know how he feels. And here's where Kvothe says, but I'm, I have to be certain, even as he's gotten tons of evidence. The loot case just being the latest of it? Right. I mean, there is a lot of evidence that his relationship with Denna is very different from all of the other relationships that she has. I will say, though, I do actually appreciate that he said he'd rather be her friend. He doesn't want to take the risk of making things awkward or pressuring her. He'd rather be her friend. And I think that he genuinely means it. And I don't think that that is that mythical friend zone. I think he genuinely actually would rather be her friend than take the risk of losing any relationship with her. And I think... There is something to be said for allowing a friendship to grow into a romance because it does happen. You know, you can have a situation where two people build a close friendship that blossoms into romance and it becomes that much more fertile because of that friendship. It can be scary to make that jump, to try to make that jump, because there is always the risk that it's going to change things or maybe we discover that we're not as compatible as we thought we were i mean there is always a risk and craving certainty is maybe not always the right way to go here because there's no guarantees in anything Kvothe even says all i want is a clear sign and i'm pretty sure that all the clear signs have been beating him across the head yeah like i don't know what more kind of clear sign he could be looking for Dinner just coming out right and saying, hey, Quoth, I love you. I mean, she's said as much with all of her actions, all of her words. You can tell, like, they actually mean something deep to her. And not even just in a friend way. Like, I think she would be very happy to make that next step. Now, granted, I'm also willing to believe that a relationship between them might not look like a traditional romantic relationship because... She has to rely on being a courtesan for her living, which means that traditional monogamy may not be an option. Holding sex as kind of a precious, only with Quoth thing might not be a thing she is able to do. Right. But it is definitely clear that there is an element of intimacy in their relationship that she does not have with her clients. Because she does not treat their relationship in a transactional fashion. There is nothing that she can gain by having Kvothe in her life save the emotional benefits that he gives her by being himself. I think that's pretty special. That actually means a lot, and Kvothe is definitely cautious because he doesn't want to lose that, but I think a little bit of boldness would probably do him well. I'm going to say that it's probably refreshing for Denna to have a person she can just be her with, that she doesn't have to put on this mask that comes along with her being a courtesan, with her pretending to be part of the upper echelons, while everyone is well aware that that is not where she technically, quote, belongs. But will to the rescue, and I want a magical horse that fits in my pocket and a ring of red amber that gives me power over demons, and an endless supply of cake. <laughs> yeah. Like I say, Quoth is craving certainty for this, and certainty just does not exist. I mean, if you look at the scientific method, all we can get is pretty close, but we can never get 100% certainty on anything, and we can get a lot out of that pretty close. And I think Quoth needs to maybe accept that. There was another moment of comfortable quiet. The wind brushed gently through the trees. It's a very evocative sentence there. Especially for a book and a series that's all about someone who is identifying themselves with the wind. They say that the Rue know all the stories in the world. Quoth says it's probably true. And Simon asks for Quoth to tell him one. And so first Quoth says, if you have to use the bathroom, do it now. 
I'm not stopping for you in the middle of my story. So go piss off. I mean, that's just good etiquette. And the story starts off with a preamble and a reference to a strange place called Ferenial. If you believe the stories, there are two things that make Ferenial unique. First, it is where all the roads in the world meet. And I think that that sentence is very important because one of the things that Denna has said to Kvo is that she'll see him where the roads meet. Second, it's not a place any man has ever found by searching. It's not a place you travel to. It is a place you pass through while on your way to somewhere else. And I wonder if that explains how Denna had a pair and where Denna goes when Kvothe can't find her. So I kind of take this in a different way. I think that when Denna uses it, because I do not believe that Denna is magical inherently. I think she is a regular mortal, like everybody else in the story. Almost everybody else in the story. Okay, yeah. Almost everybody else, I'll give you that. But I think she's mortal. I think she is a regular human being. I think that when she uses it, this is a case where perennial is a state of mind. It's sort of a collective unconscious where everybody's dreams live when we're awake. And that there's elements of Denna that are reminiscent of perennial and that you can't find her by looking for her. But she feels the same way about Kvothe. Kvothe is also in perennial for her. She can't find Kvothe when she's looking for him. They find each other when their roads cross, which is almost by accident. There's an element of kismet to it, sort of a cosmic fate. I think that that is her being poetic, describing what her feelings are for what it's like to try and find Kvothe. I think it's also how Kvothe feels about her. I think it's not literal in the story. I think it is a metaphor that they use to describe what it is like to have one another in their lives. I like that theory. I also like my theory. I don't know which one is right or if either of them are right. I'm betting neither of them are right. I think I'm right. <laughs> but to continue, and I think this is also important, they say that anyone who travels long enough will come there. This is a story of that place and of an old man on a long road and of a long and lonely night without a moon. There's that moon imagery again. It also calls to mind sort of a Canterbury Tales sort of thing where you have travelers on the road coming from disparate backgrounds and coming together for one night to be some sort of semblance of community. These sort of weird impromptu communities that spring up in all parts of the world. Like if you've ever gone traveling and stayed in hostels, when you're traveling in a foreign land and you don't know the language, your fellow travelers in youth hostels and the like tend to become this weird sort of impromptu family. They become your friends and even if you never see them again, for those days or weeks that you spend together, it becomes a found family of sorts. You go hang out together, you see movies together, you go to clubs together, you go to museums together, you see the sights together, and then you go your separate ways. Like I remember that when I graduated from college, I spent about a month in Germany. And in my travels in the hostels, I came to look for Australians. Because, so in Australia, it is a common tradition, I guess, for people to save up for a great big round trip ticket all over the world that's open-ended. And people will go out and see the world and spend time exploring before going back to Australia. Our Australian listeners, I'm really curious where you went on yours. If that was something that you did or if this is something that I misapprehended. But I'm really interested to hear more about this. But yeah, I fell in with a group from Australia and we had a really good time. You know, we were very different people. I think I was a different person then than I am now. I don't see how I couldn't be. But I just remember, you know, there were people that I probably wouldn't have hung out with on my own, but suddenly 
I was spending a lot of time with them. We were drinking together. We were going to bars together. We, we were doing all of the things that otherwise would have felt really lonely when you're out on the road like that and building that community. And it just felt really open and free. I want to hear more about our listeners' takes on that. But anyway, we'll talk more about that next week when we actually get to the meat of this story. I really enjoyed listening to you talk about that. Time for you to talk a little bit more because it is your turn for the Phronemos. So I actually went for the Will and Sim double act because they both have some strong elements this week and they play well in tandem with one another. Sim is, of course, unfailingly kind here. He is asking Quoth to share his gifts. He is encouraging Quoth to reconnect with an important part of his past that he doesn't often like to think of. And he is wanting to get to know his friend more. And then we've also got Will, who is providing that very grounded, practical approach to everything and encouraging people to accept how they feel and to just live in the moment. There's no shame in that. He says multiple times throughout all of this. And I really love that approach to emotional honesty, that approach to just owning your feelings and owning what they mean. Instead of feeling bad about feeling bad, just accept that you feel bad. It's okay to feel bad sometimes. It's natural. It is part of life. And learning to accept when things are bad helps us to you know, maybe find some sort of path forward. And so I really like that Will is encouraging Quoth to accept that, yeah, he's a little drunk. He's worried about his loot. It's okay. He doesn't have to be holding himself up to the standard of perfection. That it's okay for him to admit that he cares about something or someone. That's pretty smart. Meanwhile, we've got Simon doing the math about how Quoth's relationship with Denna is going. Like, he went through the mother of all grand gestures here. <laughs> and she's done a few for him. If that's not enough for him to infer that there's something special between the two of them that is perhaps deeper than just mere friendship, you know, this is something really deep and important. I don't want you to say mere friendship, right. though. Okay, yeah, you're right. There's something more than them being regular friends, but like a real deep friendship, something that is more than just a simple fling or romance, that there is something to their relationship that has an element of fate to it. And he's encouraging both to own that, accept that, and recognize that what they have is special. To say that they're just friends is, I mean, they are friends, but their friendship is deeper than the friendship that Quoth has with even Will and Sim, which is a pretty good friendship. There is clearly something between them that is pulling them together, and Quoth can only keep himself at a remove for so long. We know that Denna is also pulling Quoth closer as well. She's revealing more about herself. We see her vulnerable around him in a way that she really isn't around other people. So I think that Sim has some pretty astute observations here. So those are my picks for my Frenemos. How do you like that? I think that while a mild cop out to choose both of them, they are kind of a match set, salt and pepper shaker, what have you. Yeah, they're Abbott and Costello. So I think that you chose well. Thank you. Moving on here, it is your turn for Interesting Fact of the Week. All right. So in a way that is plot twist of I am actually going to name my interesting fact the way that Will does, I'm calling this one Life Finds a Way, also known as Not Just for Dinosaurs Anymore. Okay. So you and I were both Discovery Channel lovers from an early age, yes? Oh, yeah. Okay. So do you remember hearing like just a whole ton of information and news about how close the California condor was coming to extinction back in the late 80s and early 90s? Yeah, because it was like down to double digits. 
It was 30 of them. Right. Like, in captivity, in a breeding program, but there were only 30 of them known to exist in the entire world. Yeah, I remember that. All right. So, through a Herculean conservation effort, over the past 30 plus years, their population has grown to just over a thousand. So, yay! But that's not my interesting fact. Nope. The thing that I wanted to share with you all today is that San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance conservation scientists are reporting that two chicks have recently been hatched from eggs that were not fertilized by male condors. Oh, interesting. This is a process called parthenogenesis, mm -hmm. which is the basis for how the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park <laughs> were created from one unfertilized egg to create further dinosaurs for the park. It's actually real. There are a lot of different species that can reproduce through processes like parthenogenesis and other asexual reproduction methods. In this particular case, while if you remember the dinosaurs were all female because they were all hatched from no male bits, it turns out also that birds have a different chromosome structure than the XY chromosome structure that we were all taught in like eighth grade biology, which in itself is inaccurate and not steadfast, just like one X and one Y equals whatever. In this case, they have a completely different set of chromosomes. There's Z and W. Huh. It's just labels, but it is completely different than humans. And so for birds, a ZZ bird is genetically male where a ZW bird is genetically female. When a female bird lays an egg and it splits and duplicates and does all the things that parthenogenesis is, it creates a copy of its Z chromosome and becomes a male chick. Huh. Yeah. And so two separate female condors have laid eggs that became chicks without having a male bird help. Interesting. And so that was really, really interesting to me. But what's also interesting to me is that both of the female birds were actually in enclosures with male birds that they have previously bred with successfully. Unfortunately, neither one of the new chicks survived, and there's probably a good reason for it. So when you have two different chromosomes from two different parents, the chances of a bad chromosome or a bad gene that would cause a disease or an abnormality being the one that presents as dominant is less likely because you have another set of genes that can take over for that bad one. In a bird that is two copies of the same gene structure, you don't have the overlap and you don't have the safeguards. And so if there was an abnormality that would cause an early death, it is almost a certainty that it will present. And so in this particular case, both of those birds didn't make it, but there is the possibility that if a female creates an egg that hatches without male genes being introduced and that chick is viable and lives to adulthood, that that male chick could then breed with other female condors and increase the biodiversity in the whole population, which is currently a massive problem because all of the existing condors came from the 30 that used to exist back in the 80s. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Hopefully that means that they can figure out how to encourage that or artificially create that. That's really cool. I'm really interested in all that. That's a really interesting genetic quirk that happens there. And it's a reminder that life is a lot more complex than, you know, eighth grade biology would have you believe. Absolutely true. And so I think that that also gives us just a little more hope for the future of certain species. Like I found that because somebody posted about it on Twitter. And then of course, SciShow made a video about it after I'd already decided to make it my interesting fact this time. Oh, well. It just means they've got good taste. Well, it also means that they're up on their scientific knowledge. I would take it as a flattery. That we both came up with the same thing through completely separate channels? Yeah. I got it. 
But that doesn't mean I'm not going to link to that video because seriously, that video explains it way better than the article I found. Excellent. <laughs> you seem to be chomping at the bit. So it's my turn here to do the thing of the week. My recommendation is a YouTube channel called Two Minutes to Late Night. It's the world's only heavy metal themed talk show, which features the greatest bar mitzvah band in the world, Mutoid Man. <laughs> So it's hosted by Guarsenio Hall, who's best described as Conan O'Brien in Corpse Paint. The show features interviews, sketches, bedroom covers featuring musicians from an array of popular metal acts, including Mastodon, Baroness, Death Clock, High on Fire, In Flames, Shearwater, The Acacia Strain, Testament, Frozen Soul, Protest the Hero, The Cybertronic Spree, and loads others. So I first ran into these through the bedroom covers, where... What they do is they have been using Patreon money to help hire musicians from all of these great bands to record these covers in their bedrooms. So they'll each record a track and play together and build sort of a cover. And the aesthetic for many of these would be best described as yacht goth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so if you've ever wanted to hear like a heavy metal cover of a Phil Collins song or something like that... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or uh, Baker Street. Yeah, you get a lot of that. And it's a lot of fun. The sketches are pretty funny, too. I like the uh, their judgment specials, where Guarsenio will serve as judge and then force two comedians to adopt arguments in a particular side of an argument. One of my favorites is one where Guarsenio asks... Jonah Ray from MST3K and Kyle Kinane, who is a Portland area comedian, to make a decision over what is the proper etiquette for wearing a heavy metal band t-shirt. <laughs> like, so ultimately, the ruling comes down to, one, you don't get mad when famous people wear a heavy metal shirt because they're basically giving everybody else license to wear heavy metal shirts, even if you were doing it before it was cool. So it just means you have one less little bit you have to decide, and it doesn't matter if Justin Bieber has opinions about Slayer's raining blood. It's okay. And then you've got the other side of it is it is okay to wear a shirt that you bought at the concert. Because guess what? Who gets to tell people what to do? Why are you even bothering? If you want to wear that shirt that you got at the concert, wear that shirt you got at the concert. It might get a little bit sweaty or whatever, but at least you know that you'll have it and you can always wash it when you get home. And <laughs> I'm here for that sort of thing. And I also just absolutely love listening to these guys just go back and forth over trying to figure out this because they aren't allowed to pick their positions. They're just forced to defend a position. <laughs> and then Guarcinio judges on it. But yeah, it's a lot of fun. The musicians are great. The sketches are funny. And the attitude is generally that metal, as seriously as it takes itself, is inherently silly. It's also fun. And so let's embrace that silliness, that fun, and maybe not be quite so grim about it all. I mean, if you look at a lot of musicians, like they're actually a lot more laid back and funny than their onstage personas might have you believe. And this really lets them embrace that. It's just a lot of fun. So... That's going to be my recommendation. I like it. You've shown me a couple of the covers, and I think that they're awesome. I think probably one of my favorites is their cover of Jane by Jefferson Starship, because they just go around in full, like, wet, hot American summer drag. <laughs> it's so much fun. And that song also just is a banger, period. Like, even the original is awesome, and the metal version even more so. So, <laughs> give it a listen, folks. This one I highly recommend too, yes. So now it is time for us to get to our seven words. You have seven words from the book? Indeed. I had a couple that I liked. So I have, all I want is a clear sign. And then I have, the wind brushed gently through the trees. But the one that I ultimately picked is, such is the way the world works. Which is one of those statements of acceptance. That reality doesn't always work the way we want it to. And that's okay. And there are a few others, but I didn't catch those as much. I don't think we had a lot that really stood out this time. There might be some in the poem. I wasn't counting. Eh. 
Will's going around and counting them on his fingers. It just, I don't think it matters as much because yeah. I really like the words that you chose. Thank you. So you have words from life. What did you choose? We actually workshopped this a little bit because about a week ago, Will took me on a lovely picnic, which was probably on the last nice non-raining Pacific Northwest day that we could enjoy such things at our local park. And oh my goodness, it was windy as fork. But it was delightful and wonderful. And if you want to see some of the results of the wind and what it did to my books, follow us on Instagram at WaystonePod. I'm not ashamed to plug my own stuff. <laughs> I mean, they're good photos and videos, so check them out anyway. And it was fun. I loved it. And you looked at me and you said something that wasn't seven words, but we have workshopped it so that we now have a seven word sentence that sums up our experience at this picnic. It's like picnicking in the questioning hall. And while we were workshopping this, of course, I looked over at you and I'm like, wait a second. So if we turn picnic, which is a noun, into a verb, then does it have a K in it somewhere? And Will is like, no. And then he says, look, this is English. Sense making is optional. And while you could think that that's eight words, I am hyphenating sense making. So it is one word. So now it is a seven word sentence. Ha But I was very happy and charmed by the fact that you took me out on a picnic. Me too. Had a lot of fun with that. And... We both needed it, too. We needed to get out of the house. Pacific Northwest winters and late falls can be a little bit oppressive. Very gray, very wet. You have to make hay while the sun shines. <laughs> Even if the wind is threatening to take your book and spread it all over the park. Well, with that, I would like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 37 through 38 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of Afterglow. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and you have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, early access to the pod, other bonus pods and artwork and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. You know what's really funny to me? This is a podcast. This is an audio medium, and yet we still do this motion each time. And this being clinking glasses. Yeah, we make the, the glass clink motion. Every time. Every time. And none of them really feel terribly comfortable in their ability to stay on top. <laughs> Say that again without innuendo. That again without innuendo. <laughs>
is this is one of the rare moments that Kvothe actually shows vulnerability to Will and Sim. Yes, I and, do want to cover that. And I think that that is beautiful, and it is also really cool how they talk to Kvothe's insecurities and how they approach them. So I think that's something we want to make sure that we talk about a lot, because that's the meat and potatoes. That's what keeps me coming back to this story. I agree. I think that the tidbits of lore and theory and mystery are enticing, but they're not really the thing that makes me come back to the story. Yeah. They're seasoning, but they are not the special sauce. It's the characters that really make it work. The characters and Patrick Rothfuss's writing. His prose and his ability to communicate music through a written language. His poetry, his ability to speak to the soul. 